Acts chapter 11. We're dealing tonight with the sort of what I call the aftermath of Peter reaching out to Gentiles, which was a momentous step for Peter, was a momentous step for the early church. Um, And now there is obviously going to be some strong reaction to Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles by Peter's fellow Jews. A couple of things that really struck me in this chapter. First of all, um, from Peter's point of view, in, in undertaking something new and radical, like going into a Gentile's house and sharing the gospel and realizing that that spiritually they are on equal footing with the Gentiles. And that is this. We're going to see this later on through Peter's words. Basically, instead of Peter trying to convince God to get on board with where he wants to go, Peter had learned to try to figure out what road God was on and what God was doing and get involved with that. And, and the reason I point that out is because hopefully, you know, we're all like Peter sometimes. And, and I want to just share that at the very beginning because maybe you're in a situation right now where you're trying to convince God to sort of go the way you want to go. And can I just say, because I've done that, that doesn't work. It, it's futile, Okay that we eventually have to figure out and learn where God is working, what He is doing, and get on board with that. So that's, that's one of the major things we see happening here. The second thing, though, is this. I was very impressed by the hearts of these Jews who, at first, were very upset with what Peter had done in taking the gospel to Gentiles. And yet, after they gave Peter a chance to explain, which that's huge, sometimes people don't even give us the chance to explain, that after they heard the explanation, their hearts were soft enough that they they sort of relented and said, you know what, you're right. This is what God's doing. And they were willing to change their heart, if you will, and their perspective on these things. That, that, that's no small thing. Because as we saw last week, there was a lot of prejudice and, and a lot of walls and barriers that God needed to tear down in order to build this new entity called the church. Because one of the things that the church was facing at this time in its history is that this was not just a sort of a reinvention of Judaism. That's not what the church was. The church was never to be sort of Judaism, you know, up a notch. No. It was to be the church. And in the church that God was building, Jew and Gentile were going to be equal in His church. And that there was not going to be any kind of, you know, hierarchy, if you will. So, that was something that especially, obviously, the Jews, they were having to get on board with what God was doing. And 
obviously, as God is with us. He's going to be very patient, but he's also going to keep moving forward and hoping that they'll catch on and start following where he's leading, if you will. And, and we see that happening here. Now, obviously, it didn't happen with everyone. There were going to be people that were going to continually resist Gentiles being part of the church, or at least to the point where they weren't having to be circumcised or having to somehow be a proselyte into some higher form of Judaism. But at least the ones that we're seeing here in chapter 11 were realizing, you know what? This is where God is moving. This is what God is doing. And we need to get on board with it. So with that said, let's get into chapter 11 tonight. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles too had accepted the word of God. That's great. In fact, the word accepted here means to embrace. It means to take for one's own. And, and that's important too. That's something God wants all of us to do. He wants us to embrace his word and take it up for our for ourselves. In other words, it's got to become personal. It's got to be something that you and I carry. We can't live off of other people's spirituality. We can't live off of other Christians' faith. We can't live off of other Christians' understanding and comprehension and knowledge of the Word. God wants each of us to personally take up His Word and carry it with us. And take it unto ourselves. And have, if you will, a personal relationship with His Word, just like we have a personal relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And that's what this Word teaches us here. So when Peter, verse 2, went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers took issue with Him. They opposed Him. They contended with Him. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men, Gentiles. And not only that, you shared a meal with them? Now, again, that might not be significant to us. Although here at the Oasis, we do pretty good with the meal thing. And let me tell you why. Because in Jewish culture, to eat with someone, to share a meal with someone, wasn't just to eat. It was a significant sign of fellowship, a significant expression of fellowship. It was the bonding, if you will, of hearts and minds. That's what it meant for a Jew to sit down and eat a meal with someone. So the reason why, as they're contending and taking issue with Peter about him going into a Gentile's house and sharing the gospel, is not only that, but then you sat down and you ate with them. That was fellowship. And again, folks, that's, that's why we have potlucks. That's why we have food. And that, because in, Bible, in the Bible, it's not just eating together. For instance, even when like you guys maybe go out to eat with one another, or you have someone in your home for a meal, or someone invites you over to their home for a meal, when Christians share those meals together, that is a significant expression of our fellowship with each other. It's more than just eating food, you see. And that's part of why they took such issue with Peter. It was a sign of fellowship. But Peter began and explained to them, point by point, 
saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And I'm just going to read this because pretty much we studied this last week in chapter 10. Peter here is just condensing, sort of summarizing what happened uh, and how this all came about. But I, I am going to read it. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object something like a large sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came to me. And I stared, as I stared, I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild animals, reptiles, wild birds. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But I said, Certainly not, Lord, for nothing defiled or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. Now again, remember from last week, this wasn't a vision to try to get Peter to eat unkosher, you know, defiled food. This was a vision to teach Peter that God's church, not food, God's church was going to be a place where all these elements were going to come together and they were all acceptable to God. So, the voice replied a second time from heaven, verse 9, What God has made clean, you must not consider ritually unclean. And this happened multiple, three times, and then everything was pulled up to heaven again. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea approached the house where we were staying, and the Spirit told me or directed me to accompany them without hesitation. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. By the way, it was very wise for Peter not to go alone. It was very wise for him to take six people with him as witnesses to what was going on. So, these six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He informed us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and summon Simon, who is called Peter, who will speak a message to you by which you and your entire household will be saved. Now again, remember from the last couple of weeks, what was so neat was to see how God works on both ends. When God is involved with something, he's not just going to work on one side and not the other. The great thing about God is he can coordinate all sides of something. So God was working on Peter's heart to get him to a place where he was willing to go and share the gospel with this Gentile, centurion, Cornelius. And obviously God had been for a while working on the heart of Cornelius and his household so that they were prepared to hear the gospel. And they were ready and waiting and anxious and couldn't wait to hear how they could become Christians, followers of God. So then, verse 15, Peter said, Then as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he did on us at the beginning. By the way, the word fell means to be in possession of. In other words, unlike being possessed of the devil, in a sense, these people were possessed by the Holy Spirit. And there was evidence of it, as we've seen in the chapters previous. And I remembered, verse 16, notice Peter said, the word of the Lord, as he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. One of the things that the Holy Spirit will do when he lives within us, and you see it here in Peter, is Peter was able to start putting pieces of the puzzle together. You and I can't do that on our own. That is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is our responsibility is we need to immerse ourselves and saturate ourselves in the word of God. But then what the Holy Spirit will do, because he can't work with what he doesn't have to work with. If we meditate and read and study the Word of God, then we allow, give the Holy Spirit 
the basis, if you will, then to begin to take pieces of the Word of God and match them to certain situations. And that's exactly what Peter is is doing here. He says, and when this happened, I remembered. And in a sense, it was like the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to connect what Jesus had taught with what was happening. The Holy Spirit will do the same thing for us today. If we put ourselves in, a, in the place where we are learning and growing and, and gaining more knowledge and stuff, then as we go out there in the world, then the Holy Spirit will be able to take maybe verses or chapters or principles or precepts from God's Word and help us to match them to situations and to be able to see the correlation and the application. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, he says, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, we've said this before. This word means to be immersed. But it was also a word used in the culture to speak of pickling. And I've shared this with you before, but I'll share it again. That this whole concept of baptism is just like someone creates a pickle out of a cucumber. That cucumber is immersed in that liquid. And when that cucumber comes up out of that liquid that it's immersed in, it takes on a whole new nature. See, that's what the baptism of the Spirit does for those who believe in Jesus Christ. We are immersed in the Spirit, which allows that change then to take place, that that metamorphosis, that transformation. That's what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. The water baptism that we go through is simply an outward sign or symbol of what has already taken place in our hearts when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Peter then goes on. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as He also gave us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder or restrain God? And in those words then you have the realization from Peter that instead of me trying to get God to go my way, in my direction, I'm learning that if this is where God is moving, I need to get on board with God. I can't restrain and hold back and hinder where God wants to go. I'm a mere human being. I can't stand in God's way. And we even heard this sort of similar reaction earlier on in the book of Acts when Gamaliel stood up in front of the Sanhedrin and basically counseled and cautioned them to leave the apostles alone when he said these words. If this movement is of men, it will die out on its own. But if this movement is of God, then we can't fight it. Because we can't fight against God. And that's what Peter's basically saying. We've got to learn as believers where God is moving and what direction God wants us to move in and follow Him there rather than say, God, this is the road I want to go down and try to convince God to keep us going down this road. And that's what Peter began to realize. And of course, we know that this is a process 
We know earlier on in Peter's life as a disciple, he actually tried to convince Jesus not to even go to the cross because he didn't see the the realization of what God was doing. But the more he walked with God, and the more, obviously, he had the Holy Spirit living within him to guide and direct and illuminate him, he began to see the difference. And he began to go God's way rather than trying to convince God to go his way. Then, when they heard this, here's their response. They ceased their objections. Literally, they held their peace. They kept quiet. And they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted the repentance that leads to, the, to life, even to the Gentiles. See, the thing that impresses me is, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had to respond like that. They could have been very stubborn and hard-hearted and said, I don't care what you say, Peter, and I don't care what you experience. This is the way it is, and we're not having any Gentiles in the church. But again, their hearts had softened. And, And obviously the Holy Spirit had prepared their hearts so that the church, as God designed it, could continue to move forward and make progress and not have this protracted, you know, sort of uh, feud, if you will, between Jew and Gentile. God needed, especially the Jewish leadership early in the church, to buy into what God was doing quickly, so that Jews and Gentiles could be welcomed into this same body, the church, and then they could move forward as one, rather than as two distinct groups but worshiping in the same church, if you will. And yet think how sad that is that down through history, even though it might not be Jew-Gentile, that sometimes in our local churches we have similar factions and divisions within churches. And God would look down from heaven and be grieved by that because that's not, was never His intent, was never His design for the church. The church was to always be unified, no matter what background and, and culture and ethnicity and, and rich or poor, or, you know, female, male, it doesn't matter. None of that was to divide His people. His people were to be a testimony of the oneness that only God can bring, a supernatural oneness and unity. They can only be created and maintained by the Spirit. And we're going to talk even more about that on Sunday. How do we, as Christians, who obviously have differences with one another, and, and God created us to be unique and diverse from each other, how do we navigate all of this difference and diversity and still maintain our unity? That's the message of Romans 14 on Sunday. So, let's move on. We move on now to happenings in the church at Antioch. And the reason why that's significant is Antioch was probably the third most important city in the world at that time behind Rome and Alexandria. If you were to rank the importance of cities in the ancient world at this point, Rome would be number one, Alexandria would be number two, and Antioch would be number three. 
So those who had been scattered or dispersed, verse 19, because of the persecution that took place over Stephen, went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one but Jews. They were spreading the gospel. But there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene among them who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks too, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. It was going now to Jews and Gentiles. And then I love this phrase in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. There's a lot that we can do. We can turn people to us. We can turn people to a, to a church. We can turn people to a movement. We can turn people to a religion. We can turn people to a lot of things. But we can't turn people to the Lord without the hand of the Lord being on us. We need the hand of the Lord upon our lives and ministries. And by the way, in this context, the meaning of the hand of the Lord is by the help or agency of God. In other words, it's His strength. It's His ability. It's His resources that all this is happening. It's not us doing it in our own power, wit, strength, wisdom, and all that. When the Bible talks about the hand of the Lord being on someone, or on a group of people, it's describing what is happening when a group of people are totally relying and depending on God to do it through them. They're simply the instrument. They're simply the channel. God is the one who's accomplishing it. God is the one who's achieving it. It is His hand that's doing it. And when God's hand is on a life... Excuse me. Just lost my wedding ring. Don't tell my way. <laughs> when God's hand is on a life, on a ministry, on a church, you will tell it. You will know it. Because there will be things happening that only can be explained by God. If, if you and I are accomplishing, if we're doing it all ourselves then where's the need for the hand of the Lord? There is none. But when God is moving, and God is doing things, then what is happening can only be explained by God. You see. And that's, that's where God wants to get all of us, in our lives and in the life of our churches. He wants us to get to a place where we are simply His channel and instrument, and He's working so powerfully through us that the things that are happening are just sort of unexplainable, if you will. When you think about all the times we've heard words like this through the book of Acts, when they saw they were astonished, they were amazed, they were astounded. How often do we use those words as Christians today? Are we... Living lives where we are constantly amazed and astounded and astonished because of what God is doing? That's the level He wants us to live at. But many times we settle down here because we're trying to do it. Instead of letting God do it. And when we allow God to do it, 
there's just some amazing things that happen. I, I shared with you all on Sunday that even though last week was a very taxing and trying week for me personally, I wouldn't have traded an experience that I had last week for anything in the world because I was able to be in a position in a place where I saw God work over and over again and where I would just sit back and go, only God can do that. That's His hand. That's not mine. That's not anybody else's. That's God's hand on that. His fingerprints are all over it, if you will. And that I love that phrase. We all need to Strive to have the hand of the Lord with us. To be doing things by His help or agency. Through His might, activity, and power. Then, verse 22. A report about them came to the attention of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You ever notice as you go and read and study the book of Acts, that Barnabas is always willing to go wherever God and the church wants him to go. I mean, there's also just such a great example. No wonder he was an encourager. Because he wasn't about himself or, well, I can't go, that's inconvenient. It was like he was always in a place where if, if, if he needed to go or some church or some ministry or some that was needed, he was there. First one, right? I'll go. And I think it's also a great testimony to him that the church was always willing to send him, not to get rid of him, because in a sense, that took a lot of faith, if you will, and selflessness on their part. Because in a sense, they were allowing him to depart for a season, knowing that selfishly, You'd like somebody like a Barnabas to be in your church every day. But yet maybe God wants him to be somewhere else. Ministering for a while. And then come back. So Barnabas is such a great guy here in the book of Acts. Always willing for God to send him somewhere. And when he came, verse 23, notice this. He saw the grace of God. That's a great phrase. Do you realize that the grace of God is actually something that can be seen? Sensed. And obviously the grace of God is His supernatural influence on people's lives. I can see the grace of God today. I've seen it many times in my life as a Christian. I see it many Sundays and Tuesdays when I'm in fellowship with you because I see it in you. I saw it this last week in the, in the Evian family who was facing cancer surgery. And, and I saw a family of faith. And I saw a family that was operating with the peace and grace that God was giving them. I saw God's grace in their lives. I saw God's grace operating in the marriage getaway this weekend. I saw God's grace over and over again. And and I hope you see it too. Not only in your lives, but in the life of others that you sense and see. That's God. 
I even see that when Christians who maybe have never met or don't know each other very well, but yet there's almost like that instantaneous bond. It's almost like we can sense that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's seeing the grace of God. And so I love that phrase as well. And when he came, he saw the grace of God operating here and he rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. So many things in this verse. I just want to quickly go through here. First of all, again, this word encourage, it's the word parakaleo. It means to come alongside of someone and strengthen them and give them courage and encourage them and just tell them, keep on doing what you're doing. They're sort of like this cheerleader. That's what the word parakaleo means. It's the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit as our comforter. The one that Jesus would send when he ascended into heaven. I will send you another comforter just like me and he will come alongside of you and he will be your constant cheerleader spiritually. Keeping you gone when you want to give up. Getting you back up when you fall down. That's what this word means. And Barnabas had a ministry of encouragement. Barnabas didn't need a program in the church. He he didn't need some label. He was a ministry unto himself, as many of you are. You're just out there being Jesus every day to anybody you see. That's a ministry. You don't need some church to sanction it. You're just out there being Jesus. And that was Barnabas. And then the second word I want to focus on is the word remain. He encouraged them all to remain true. It means to hold fast to, to stay near the Lord. With devoted hearts. And can I say that this, I think, is the key to remaining and holding fast to the Lord that he just talked about? Because this word devoted means determination. It means purpose. It means a plan. Those of you that were at the marriage getaway, you're going to hear this again. Talk about a little bit different context, but we talked about plans over the weekend. Listen. As it was even pointed out this weekend, God sometimes is a God of spontaneity. And, and our lives sometimes need to be spontaneous. Nothing wrong with that. But there's much about our life that if we don't plan to do something, if we don't determine to do something, it doesn't happen. It never gets done if we don't determine it. And so what Barnabas is encouraging the Christians here to do is if you want to hold fast and you want to stay near the Lord, develop a plan for how to do that. What are are you going to do to stay near the Lord? Do you have a strategy? Do you have a plan? Have you made a determination of if I want to stay close to God, how do I do that? And then begin to Put that into practice. That's what is brought out in the word devoted. Whether it's, I'm going to get up and I'm going to have devotions every day. I'm going to read a little bit in the word. I'm going to make sure that I pray a little bit each day. I'm going to make sure when I have the opportunity that I fellowship with 
my, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know what that plan or determination looks like. But Barnabas is giving us great advice here. He's saying, look, staying near the Lord and, and, and you know, holding fast to our faith is not something that's just going to happen as we just sit back passively and, and hope for it. It's got to be something that we enter into and take some responsibility for and say, God, here's what I'm going to do to stay close to you. And Barnabas laid that out for them. Because, it says, verse 24, Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a significant number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to look for Saul. And this word look speaks about an intense search. It, this wasn't like the first guy he saw when he got to Tarsus was Saul. He took some time and effort and energy and whatever to, to get to Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. And what did they do? They taught them. They taught them. And a significant number of people they taught. Now I want to stop here with the word taught. This word means to explain or instruct others in the scriptures, the word of God, obviously, in the context. But it also means this, that one cannot explain, instruct, counsel, exhort, comfort, admonish, whatever, with the Word of God if we haven't learned it ourselves. So before we can minister the Word of God to others in this Word, the implication is I've got to let God minister the Word to me. And so any teacher, any counselor, any Christian who wants to minister the Word to others has to allow God to minister the Word to them. And again, that's something all of us should be striving for. To putting ourselves in a position where we can be continually having the Word ministered to us so that it doesn't just stay with us and we soak it up like a spiritual sponge and just keep getting fatter and fatter and fatter. No, we give it out. And we share it with others to encourage, to counsel, to admonish, to comfort. That's what God wants His people to do. And then it says, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. The significance I see there in this phrase is this. We have come to a place in history today where Christians call themselves Christians. But when the church was first started, no Christian presumed to call themselves a Christian. When Christians were called Christians, they were called that by others. And more than not, they were called that by others who weren't Christians. In other words, these early Christians were living so Christ-like 
that their life, their actions, their words, and everything reminded other people of Jesus. In fact, words that end in I-A-N literally mean the party of. So in other words, they were saying that these people are the party of Jesus. They belong to... They're Jesus people. And they were described as Christians. I thought to myself, wow, how different would it be today if none of us ever called ourselves a Christian? But the only way we, in a sense, got that description of our lives, of us, was that we earned it when others call us that. That's what happened in the early church. The other thing I'll point out is this. The word disciple. This word is a significant word, obviously, in the New Testament. Hundreds of times Jesus talks to disciples. This word means to learn by use and practice. In other words, a disciple is not someone, again, who's just taking in information. Not someone who's just absorbing knowledge. That's not a disciple. A disciple is one who is applying what they learn. And who, over use and practice, is becoming very proficient in things. In other words, it goes back to a consistency a practice, a use. And we all know that principle in life. If you and I don't do something very often, and then we do it, we're not very proficient, we're not very good at it. But if you practice something every day, like you men and women golfers out here, you get out there and you golf. If you golf every day, I would hope after a year, <laughs> your score would drop just a little bit. If not, maybe you better give that up. Because there's just sort of that general thing that the more I do something, the more I practice something, the more I use something, the more proficient I get in something. And that same principle applies to us spiritually, which is why God calls us, if nothing else, just be consistent. Just be consistent. Because it is the cumulative effect of being consistent in our spiritual disciplines that will really make the difference in our lives over the long haul. The reason why I'm so passionate about this tonight is I'm going to share something here tonight for the very first time with this group. I've shared it with a couple people, but I haven't shared it in mass yet, and obviously I will on a Sunday too. But God's really been working in my heart this past year and wanting me to undertake something new, sort of a new challenge for me. As many of you know, I do, I write a weekly blog once a week and put it out there. We've been going through the Psalms now for almost three years. I'm almost done. 
think I'm on 146 or something like that. So we are going to go through all 150 Psalms. But God kept speaking to me saying, Jeff, you know that one of the things you hear from Christians most often is that they really struggle to do, to get into the word every day and develop that consistency. Jeff, why don't you do something to encourage them to do that? And so what God led me to was this decision just that I made about a month ago that beginning in 2015, January 1st, instead of writing a weekly blog, in a sense, I'm going to ask people to come with me to my study every day. And if you do nothing else each day to just read some of the thoughts I have on the Scriptures and do it every day, that whole year. Because I want to try to do whatever I can do to encourage Christians to develop that consistency every day. Not once a month, not once a week, but every day. Because I think if I could get Christians to buy into that and begin to practice every day and build that consistency in the Word of God, with their connection to the Word, that in a couple months' time, you would see such a dramatic effect and difference in your Christian life. Consistency. That's the whole concept of disciple. The whole implication of that word and the meaning of that word is someone who gets up every day and has developed consistent, constant, spiritual disciplines in their life that they keep doing. And that as they keep doing them and using them and practicing them every day, they get pretty proficient over time. See, one of the things I'm going to point out early on is that I believe the Bible clearly makes a distinction between a believer in Jesus Christ and a disciple of Jesus Christ. They're not one and the same. I think a Christian can be a believer in Jesus Christ and obviously have faith in Jesus and have their sins forgiven and be on their way to heaven, but that doesn't mean they're a disciple. The only condition for being a believer is to have faith in Jesus Christ. But if you study the Gospels, there are many conditions of being a disciple beyond faith in Christ. For instance, I'll give you an obvious one. Did not Jesus say, if you want to be my disciple... You've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus starts putting conditions on discipleship that he never puts on salvation. Because being a disciple is being a consistent follower of Jesus Christ. A disciplined follower of Jesus Christ. And that's why I think that when they were first called Christians in Antioch, it was because they weren't just believers. They were disciples. And these other people saw the consistency and faithfulness of their lives. Let's end with this. Verse 27, At that time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, got up and predicted by the Spirit that a severe famine was about to come over the whole inhabited world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. 
So the disciples, each in accordance with his financial ability, decided to send relief to help meet a need to the brothers living in Judea. They did so, sending their financial aid to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Notice two very important things there, and I hate to end with this because I'm wrapping it up, but I think I'll start here next week. But notice two things about this giving. First of all, they only gave in proportion to their financial ability. Wow, that's important. Christians today, especially by these multi-media ministries, are made to feel guilty if somehow they don't give their very last dime to them. And somehow you trust God that He'll... No, the Bible teaches us that God only expects us to give in proportion to what our ability and means are. Not to give beyond that. That's why... Giving, in a sense, with people is never equal because we all have different means and proportions by which to give out of. And that was happening here. They gave according to their means, in proportion to their means. And the second thing, notice what they did. They determined to give. Because as I said earlier, most of the time, If we don't determine or plan to give, we don't give. If we don't determine or plan to do much of anything and make it the priority, then it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen just by itself. We've got to learn to determine and plan to do certain things. That's how it happens, you see. And that's what they did. They determined to help meet this need of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. What a great chapter. I hope it will encourage you. Let's close in prayer. Father God, may you encourage us to be your disciples. Help us, Lord, not to be satisfied to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. To be willing to go that extra mile and to be that one that Jesus would say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And God, help us then as disciples to just be a channel and an instrument through which you can work to bless and minister to other people as we see here happening in Acts chapter 11. Give us determination, God. Give us purpose. Help us to live intentionally. Yes, some great things happen in our lives spontaneously. But much of our life would not have happened had we not been intentional about some things either. Help us to be more that way with our spiritual lives, with our walk and fellowship with you, and with our fellowship with one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you on Sunday and next Tuesday.